Well, the election is over, but the anxiety is still with us. It's kind of funny how that happens, isn't it? I saw a tweet on election day put up by the New York Times, and it was telling their readers how to deal with their anxiety, how to cope with the stress. And I don't know, there's just some of them that I, I loved, like uh, five finger breathing. I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but that will calm your stress. Or breathe like a baby, that's one you might want to try. But my personal favorite is called the cool down. They, they recommend plunging your face in a bowl of cold water for like 15 to 30 seconds. Now, maybe you think those are ridiculous, kind of like I do, or maybe you go, hey, at least they're giving people something they need, because we all have to deal with anxiety somehow. I mean, you can just feel the rise and increase in anxiety in our own heart and your community and in the whole nation the last few years. I want to be really clear, I'm using the word anxiety here to mean kind of a sense of dread or doom about the future that often leaves us feeling uneasy and maybe even a little bit afraid. And, you know, it's been a crazy last few years. I mean, you know, it seems like there's been all kinds of challenges and, and bad news. The most obvious, of course, is COVID. And we know how it goes. Millions of people died. People here in our own church, in our own community that we cared about died. People lost jobs. Kids went without school and missed important milestones in their life. And we're still dealing with the educational fallout that hits everybody, but especially low-income people. We had a controversial vaccine and, and, ma- and mask mandates, but it wasn't just COVID, of course. The rise of anxiety is partly due to, to you know, we, we all witnessed George Floyd being murdered. And, and then there were these protests in the streets about it. And it would be great to say if somehow that led to a national conversation about race, because racial harmony is so important to God and so important to our country. But it's more like a middle school food fight, which is sad and, 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 and you know, not what anybody would want. But it is reality, and it's part of what makes us anxious. There's a war going on in U- Ukraine and Russia. Every once in a while it threatens to go nuclear or to turn into World War III. Throw into that contentious elections where people tell us, this is the most important election of your lifetime. Or then there's the economy, high gas prices, inflation, uh, high interest rates, economic slowdown. And, And then all that's forcing your face over and over and over by social media, cable news media, traditional media, who have a profit motive to keep you and me as anxious as possible so that we stay on their platforms and they make more money. And of course, that's just a narrow slice of all the national issues. And then it's not even your personal issues. How you're handling, dealing with your aging parent, or your kid who's not doing well in school, or your own health issues. It brings me to what people have asked me, what have I learned in the sermon series through Daniel that finishes up next week. And you know, I feel like I've learned a lot in this trip through Daniel. And the thing that I'd say that I've learned is this. In the middle of personal and political and cultural upheaval, Daniel and his, his buddies, in the midst of chaos, are, are poised and calm and confident. That's what stood out to me. Like The more things fall apart in their life, the more upheaval, the more things seem out of control, the more Daniel is at peace, like, like calm, like, he, he, he knows something that I want to know. It, it, what, I, what I would say, just following what other people have said, uh, is that he is a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. And I feel like I want to learn from him. I want to learn to figure out how to have that kind of peace. Don't you know how you can be calm and not anxious in our anxious world? How, how, do, we, how do we do that? 
Remember the story of Daniel. It starts all the way back when King Nebuchadnezzar leads Babylon into Jerusalem. And of course, he destroys people. He kills people. He, he destroys the temple, which is the center of their religious life, their cultural life. And then he drags some of them back off to Babylon. And that's how Daniel and his buddies end up in Babylon. They're taken captive. And when they, when they get there, their whole world is turned upside down. They're given new names. They're enrolled in this Babylonian leadership academy. And what's Daniel? What do you, what do you find him doing? He's at peace. He, he's calm. He, he's not freaking out. And I think part of the reason is that there's a clue that, that's given to us in the first couple of verses of, of the first chapter. Here's what it says. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. So, so yeah, Daniel's in Babylon, but he knows it's because of God's plan. It's not by accident. It's not by accident. And I think that leads us to the first principle of how do you live a non-anxious life in an anxious world? And it's this. You always include God in your story. Because right now you can look at the world and feel like it's out of control. And you can look at your life and think, my life is out of control. But it is not. Your life isn't and the world isn't out of control because Jesus sits on his throne. Jesus is king of kings. That Jesus rules and reigns over all things. And anxiety fades in the presence of Jesus. That's because anxiety teaches us to think about our future without God in it. And when we think about our future without God, then of course we feel all this pressure. Of course we're afraid. Of course we're uneasy. Because we're like, how are we going to handle this? And what are we going to do? And, and then what? What comes next? How does it all turn out? And so that's why you feel that rising sense of dread inside of us. But when a non-anxious person looks at the world, they always see God in their future. So you're going to tell your story, your story about what's happening in your life, your story about the world. You're going to tell some story about it to yourself and to others. And make sure you do what Daniel did, and that is start that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, that God is on his throne, that God is not surprised by any of it. I mean, maybe it's the, the, the election that had you upset. So you could follow the New York Times advice and stick your head in cold water. I mean, that's one option. Another option is to do what we might call the Daniel option or the, the biblical option, and that is to remind yourself that Jesus is king. And that no matter what's happening around here, that you don't have to freak out because he's in control. And that would have been true no matter who won or who lost that election. Jesus is the ultimate authority, not a president and not a party. But Jesus isn't just king in Washington, D.C. He's also king in that hospital room that you found yourself in and that you are, weren't prepared for. Jesus is also king in that job interview that you have coming up. The one that you really need. The one you've been hoping for. The one you're nervous about. Jesus is also king in that conversation that you need to have. The one you've been putting off. The one trying to reconcile a relationship. Remember this. Anxiety flees in the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus is king and Jesus is with me. But as the story of Daniel continues, we, we came to Nebuchadnezzar who had a dream. Remember, he had a dream, and he wanted his wise men to tell him what he dreamed and then interpret it for him. And they're like, 
dude, we can't do that. We don't know what you dreamed. So he's all in this rage and going nuts, Nebuchadnezzar is, and, and he, he wants all his wise men killed. So he sends the king's guard out to kill them all, and Daniel and his buddies are part of that group of wise men, so they show up at the door, and they're going to kill him under king's orders. And, and what do you find? Well, there you have Daniel. He's kept his composure. He's not freaking out. And it says that he's able to talk to the king's guards with wisdom and tact. Like, he's able to just dialogue with them, figure it out with them. Well, how do you get that kind of composure when your life is under threat? Well, it's what Daniel does next that I think gives us a clue. Daniel goes to a small group. Did you know Daniel was in a small group? Yeah. Daniel's in a small group. Watch. Look what he does. Verse, two, seven, uh, verse 17. Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends. Like he went back to a small group and said, here's what's going on in my life. And he urged them to plead for mercy to the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So they all get together. They, they, they share what's going on. And they just sit there and pray together. And that leads us to the second principle of how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. And that is you live in deep community. And non-anxious people live in deep community because anxiety will always try to cut you off. Anxiety will always try to say you're alone. Anxiety will always try to isolate you and say it's all up to you. But what's incredibly important is when you feel overwhelmed with life, and, and that's okay. We've all are there, been there, will be there tomorrow. You, you got to have people you can go and share that with and listen and pray. That's one of the ways that God brings peace into our life. It's one of the ways he displaces anxiety. If, if anxiety flees in the presence of King Jesus, anxiety also flees in the presence of good Christian friends. And then, of course, there's the golden image. King Nebuchadnezzar makes a big golden image of himself and tells everybody they got to bow down and worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't make a big deal out of it. They're just like, yeah, we're not doing that. And, and the king finds out. Uh, he calls them up, hey, bow down and worship the golden image, or you go into the fiery furnace, and they're like, yeah, we'll pass. And he's in this big rage. Again, king's out of control, turmoil. And, and here are these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at peace, calm. Here's their response. I swear we could start every day of our life by reading this response when their life is under threat, and, and we would get a lot out of it. So here we go. Here's what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is under threat of the fiery furnace. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. In other words, king, you're not in control. Jesus is on the throne. But even if he does not, in other words, even if he doesn't save us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. I mean, do you know how awesome that is? How fantastic of a response that is? What I love about it is that, is that it, is, it is so confident, but not presumptuous. Like, like, King, you think you're in charge of us, don't you? You think you're in charge of this whole thing. And that's why you're in turmoil and rage and throwing a big fit. But guess what? God is in charge. Jesus is on his throne. So the third, the third principle of how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world, surrender to God's will. Because they're like, you know what? I'm good with God's plan. You want to throw me in the fire? God can save me. And maybe he will, and maybe he won't. But either way, I'm not going to bow down and serve your gods. When we're under attack, when our life feels out of control, here's, here's the principle. We find peace when we surrender to God's will. When, when we say, God, 
I want your will, not my will. May your will be done in my life. God, I'm good with your plan. Things don't have to work out for me the way I want to, the way I want them to work out in order for me to be at peace. Sometimes I, I think we learn by, by just reading what other Christians around the world are facing and how they process it and handle it. So I was reading about these Chinese Christians. And, you know, if you, if you uh, are a Chinese Christian and you don't go to one of the state-sponsored churches, you're in big trouble. So if you show up to these house churches that are independent, that are kind of on their own, the government doesn't like that. And so it's really common for the government to, to go to somebody who's hosting one of these house churches and say, we're going to take your house. So these Chinese Christians are just saying, here's how we process that. Here's what we say. Is when they come and say, we're going to take your house, we go, well, it's not mine. I gave it to Jesus. And then they're like, well, they don't want to do with that, right? These, these communist guards, they don't want to do with it. So they're like, well, we're going to take your house. We don't know about Jesus. We're going to take your house. You're going to be on the street. And they go, oh, okay. Then we'll trust God for our daily bread and our daily bed. And the guards are like, well, we're going to beat you. And they're like, okay, then we'll trust God for healing. Well, we're going to throw you in prison. And you know where this goes. There are whole churches established in Chinese prisons because people go there and they start telling people about Jesus. And they're like, well, we'll kill you. And they go, well, then I get to be with Jesus. So it's frustrating to try to, 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 to harm somebody who is willing to do whatever God gives them. Who just said, I don't have to have things turn out the way I want in order for my life to be okay. They didn't want to go to prison or have their house taken or be beaten or any of that. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't want to go in the fiery furnace. But they wanted God's will more than their will. God, I don't want cancer. I didn't want the election to turn out this way or that way. I didn't want this problem in my life. But the non-anxious person says it's okay because God is enough for me, that he is my peace. And then in Daniel 6, we saw a couple weeks ago how Darius said, you got to pray to me. It was, the guys were trying to trap Daniel, and so they, they, they uh, made a rule, a law, that you only pray to Darius for 30 days. And Daniel's like, well, okay, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to go pray to God like I always do. And they're going to throw him in the lion's den. And he goes, well, I guess I'm going to die then because, you know, it is what it is, but I'm going to go pray. And that's the fourth principle of being a non-anxious presence in, a, in an anxious world is just to be a person of prayer. Because prayer is the way we recenter our life back on God. Prayer is the way we invite God back into our story. Prayer is the way we surrender our life to God. And chapter 9 just unfolds more about Daniel's prayer life. And we'll get to a fifth, eventually we'll get to a fifth and final principle of how to be a non-anxious presence. I'll say this, you might have noticed we skipped Daniel 8. If you hit the QR code on the seat back in front of you or, or in your Daniel workbook, it'll take you to a, to a little thing where we went through Daniel 8 that you might find helpful. But now we're in Daniel 9. Let's start in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem, that's the exile, would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So what these verses are doing is just kind of setting the scene. This prayer that Daniel is getting ready to pray, and we're going to read here in a moment, uh, took place during the first year of Darius's rule after Babylon had been defeated. That was in 539 B.C. 
And Daniel is going through uh, his, his version of the Bible, and he looks at what the prophet Jeremiah has written, and it says this exile out of Jerusalem is going to last about 70 years. And, and so because he sees that promise, he starts praying. Uh, Daniel starts praying because Daniel doesn't see any conflict between God's sovereign plan and prayer. I mean, I guess he could have said, well, hey, God says it's only going to last 70 years. That time is almost up, so why pray? But he doesn't. He knows God is sovereign and that his prayer matters. Now, we're told he prayed this prayer while wearing sackcloth and ashes. What that tells us is that this is a prayer of repentance. Repentance Because remember how Israel ended up in Babylon in the first place? It was because of their sin. So I'm going to read it. It's a little bit longer prayer. I'm going to read it all uh, because it's just so incredibly good. When I read it, pay attention to the pronouns. I, I highlighted some of them. Pay attention to the pronouns. Ask yourself, is this first person or third person pronoun? A little English class. You didn't know you were going to get that today, right? And if you don't know the difference between a first and third person pronoun, you should have paid more attention to your English teacher in school, right? Here we go. I pray to the Lord, my God, and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquity of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Whatever that prayer is, it is not cheap repentance. He uses 10 different words to describe his sin. There's no justifying, no rationalizing, no blame shifting. He even recognizes and says, God, you are right and good to judge us for our sins. If you did not judge us for our sins, you would not be a good God. But but what did you see about the pronouns? They, They were first person, right? We, our, us. You know what they didn't say? They, them, those people. 
So when Daniel says we over and over and over, who's he talking about there? Well, he, well he's including himself in confessing these sins. And that's remarkable for a couple reasons. The first is because Daniel is like a good guy. He's one of the very few, very few people in the Bible that is presented as, as like a really good, faithful guy. I mean, all the heroes that you think of, Moses, yeah, he was good, but he was also a murderer. Noah, yeah, he was also a drunk. Abraham, yeah, he was also a liar. But Daniel's like presented as a good dude. And second, it's remarkable because these sins that Daniel's confessing were committed hundreds of years before he had ever even been born. So Daniel is confessing his ancestors' sin as if they're own, as if they're his own. But, but now, I, I'm not saying that you are accountable for another person's sin, but what I am saying is that we are all connected to each other. We're all connected to the history of Christians who've gone before us and Christians around the world. So that it is right, it is good, it is biblical for us to confess our sins, the sins of the church, sins that we maybe not even committed. Right? I mean, maybe we didn't sin the same way our ancestors have sinned, of Christians who've gone before us. I mean, that's fine. Daniel hadn't, though, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't play the victim like, oh, woe is me, these other people sinned, and now I'm having to deal with it. He doesn't blame anybody else. Maybe that's because he knows he sinned in similar ways. Or, or maybe it's because he knows that if he had been in their shoes, he might have done the same thing. Nobody can know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that sin is not individualistic. It's not just between me and God. Sin affects other people. Sin is corporate. And therefore, it is right and good and biblical for our repentance to be corporate as well. But let's go back to that we, because there's more in there. Who's the we Notice whose sins Daniel confesses. He confesses Israel's sins, not Babylon's sins. He confesses Israel's sins, God's people's sins, not Babylon the culture's sins. And not because he didn't know them. Remember, Daniel lived there for decades. He'd risen to heights of power. He knew how the sausage was made. He knew the vanity and the cruelty and the greed and the immorality and the idolatry. And yet he does not confess Babylon's sins. He confesses the church's sins. Are we too quick? Maybe we are. Maybe we're too quick to confess the culture sins, to point out the culture sins, but to forget to confess our own sins. Maybe we're too quick to focus on the sins outside, Instead of the sins inside here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? See, it's not as if Daniel not confessing Babylon sins means he's okay with them. He is for sure not. Remember, he's the one who drew lines and would not eat the food from the king's table. They would not bow down to the golden statue. They would not conform to the pressures of Babylon. They stayed faithful to God. And yet at the same moment, they were more concerned about the sins inside God's people than the sins outside. But it's not like Daniel says, oh yeah, those churches, those pastors, those Christians over there, they're bad. Don't do what they do. They're, they're hypocrites. No, he puts himself in there. He says, this is a me problem. I'm in this. It's my problem. So, so here's the thing. Sometimes we're pointing our finger accusatorily at the culture. And Daniel says, here, let me give you something to do with that finger. Hold this mirror up to yourself and do a little self-examination. 
we're getting close to the fifth and the final truth about how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. But, but there's a little bit, bit more we got to get to here. And that is this, that, that, that Daniel knew the exile was about over. The exile that was due to sin is about over. But he's still confessing sin. Why? Because he knew the exile didn't pay for the sin. The exile was a consequence of the sin. But the exile didn't pay for the sin. So Daniel is kind of by faith looking forward to some day. When he's confessing that sin, he's looking forward to some day that would end up being Jesus coming to pay for sin. Remember what anxiety is? At least the way we're using it today. Anxiety is a sense of dread or doom about the future that leaves us feeling uneasy and maybe even fearful. And so what we've, been to, what we've seen from Daniel so far is this. That, that, that he tells us, look, here's the way you combat anxiety. Is that whenever you tell your story, whenever you think about your story, remember that Jesus is king. Include God in your story. He is in charge. He is not surprised by anything that's going on, any challenge you're facing. Second, live in deep relationships. Live inside of a community. If you were to tell Daniel that you weren't in a small group, he would look at you like you're an idiot. So get your butt in a small group. It's, it's surrendering to God's will. It's saying my life does not have to work out the way I want it to work out for me to be okay and experience God's peace. I want God's will more than my will. And I pray. Non-anxious people pray because they're re-inviting God back into their story. They're surrendering their life back to God's will. And then fifth, is this. The fifth is that they know that God accepts them in Jesus. See, Daniel was confessing the sin, looking forward to a day that one would come and pay for Israel's sin. So, so non-anxious people, they look to Jesus as their salvation. They, they come what may, they know that they are loved. Come what may, whatever national crisis or personal crisis, it may all come. We live in a world that is a lot of times feels out of control, but they know they are loved and forgiven and accepted by God. And therefore they have nothing to dread, nothing to fear, because nothing can take that away from them. Jesus, the King of Kings, Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, is also the one who gave his life for them. So he loves them. And he's promised to never leave them or forsake them. So come what may, they belong to Jesus. And that's where they get that peace. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we give you thanks that you are on the throne. That no matter what's happening in us and around us, that you reign and you rule. And we surrender our life to you. We give you our life and we say, Jesus, we want more than anything what you want. We want to find our peace in your love. We want to find our peace in the fact that you are the king. Help us, Jesus, be a non-anxious presence in our anxious world that we might point people to the Prince of Peace, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.